Absolutely bananas insane. Mike, do you know what I'm referring to? Uh, is that the new flavor of smoothie that shows up in your uh, HelloFresh box? Does HelloFresh deliver smoothies? <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. I don't know, but I'm intrigued. No, no. I'm going to explain what that means. Just keep that phrase in mind. Absolutely bananas insane. Hi, everyone. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and you're listening to Gadget Lab. I am joined remotely by my co-host, Wired senior editor Michael Calori, who is back from a break. We missed you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be back, and it's great to see your face on the little postage stamp on my screen. I'm sure you missed Zooming in your time off. I did, yes. (laughs) All right. Absolutely Bananas Insane is what Wired's digital director, Brian Barrett, tweeted the other day when he shared his story about the harassment campaign that six former eBay employees allegedly launched against a Massachusetts couple who happened to run an e-commerce news site. And that is what we're going to talk about first on today's podcast. Brian, thanks for coming on Gadget Lab. Hi, thank you guys for having me back. Then later in the show, Wired's Lily Hay Newman is going to join us to take us through the details of a troubling Russian disinformation campaign. But first, I'm just going to call this story Bananas eBay. Is that okay? Can we just can we just call it Bananas eBay? I think like that's what it says in the court documents, right? (laughs) Yep, I think so. Allegedly Bananas eBay. A criminal complaint released this week by the Massachusetts District Attorney's Office lays out this series of bizarre allegations that former eBay executives coordinated a long, outrageous harassment campaign. Brian, take us through the details of the case. How did this all start? What do we need to know? Uh, I will, uh, you know, in terms of all the details, I I will just give you the speed run version because there are too many details. It's a 56 or something page uh, criminal complaint and every page is more bizarre and alarming than the last. So uh, it all started last August. Um, Two eBay executives who we now know to be the former CEO and the former head of PR were texting with each other, uh, complaining about a site called e-commerce bites, which uh, they felt was covering uh, eBay too negatively. Um, the former CEO says to the head of former head of PR, uh, something to the effect of take her down. That was in one of the texts. And that launched a, uh, alleged caper that lasted for two or three weeks. Um, one thing I want to make clear is everything here, nothing's proven. There's still a legal process to play out. And the two executives in question are not charged with anything It's sort of a Thomas a Beckett, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest situation, it feels like, uh, where they handed the ball uh, to their head of global security, and uh, he ran with it and threw it at a middle-aged couple from Massachusetts. So what exactly did they do? Um, We have six eBay employees and contractors, all of whom have uh, left the company since or were fired, uh, who plotted a bizarre campaign to harass this couple the strategy was two-pronged one they were going to mail them increasingly disturbing packages to their houses that included live cockroaches a halloween mask that looked like a bloody pig's face uh live uh fly larvae live spiders a funeral wreath and a book about how to cope with a dead spouse this is a married couple uh, phase two was to create a phony social media profile that would continually batter these people with DMs, taking credit for uh, all of the deliveries that were going on. Eventually, in 
a huge galaxy brain strategy moment. The eBay employees said, you know what, we're going to make these this couple feel like they're under attack and then step in as eBay and solve their problem for them so that they will be nice to us. What? Uh, yeah, it, 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 it did not work out that way, but that was the plan. Uh, a couple of other highlights, and I'm sorry, we'll get to questions, but there's just so much, guys. They flew out from California, allegedly, to Massachusetts, drove to this couple's house, allegedly, with a GPS tracker that they intended to put on the couple's car, but couldn't get in to the garage because the garage was locked. Uh, they advertised, allegedly, sex parties at all hours on Craigslist with this couple's home address, so they doxed the couple's address. Uh, and it just keeps going. Like there's more, there's so much more, but I'm going to stop there because that's sort of the gist of it. Um, and, and it's, it's really incredible to see that, that this could have happened and, and very curious to see where it goes from here. So, uh, tell us about e-commerce bites. What did this couple do to draw the ire of these eBay executives? What kind of stories are they writing? Yeah. You know, this is an industry newsletter focused on e-commerce. They cover sites like eBay, obviously, but also Amazon and, uh, you know, Craigslist occasionally, anywhere that there's an e-commerce aspect. And there were specific stories uh, that the executives reportedly weren't fans of. Um, but you know, when you look back at them, they're not crazy over-the-top critical. This is just sort of the kind of criticism you would expect if you're a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, the other thing to note, though, is that they were act. They eBay had concerns about some of the commenters too. They felt that some of the commenters on the site were especially uh, egregious and over the top, and and in some time, some cases, threatening. Uh, and so that was an element to this as well. So presumably, this couple at some point contacted authorities and said, "This stuff is happening to us. How did this plan unravel?" So. It, According to court documents, uh, that you're right, they had called the police and they got the police involved. And in fact, when the eBay team made contact with them and said, "Hey, we're here to help," uh, the uh, the uh, prosecutors say that the couple had said, "Well, actually, we were already talking to the police, so go for there." Uh, the couple spot knew that they were being followed. They spotted that they were being followed by a van, a minivan. They got the license plate number almost exactly right. They were off by one number, but basically, they got enough information to trace this rental car that was following them around town back to a member of the eBay team. And it all kind of unspooled from there. So, um, you know, there are, uh, there are other news organizations uh, that cover very specific parts of the tech industry. Uh, like, for example, I'm thinking of um, all of the different news sites and blogs and newsletters that cover uh, electric vehicles and write about Tesla and write about, you know, Nissan and, and Honda all the time. Um, has any sort of harassment campaign shown up anywhere else in the tech industry, or is this a pretty much an isolated incident? So, and and I invite uh, Lauren too to chime in here if she knows that the closest that comes to top of mind isn't harassment specifically. It's when HP uh, did a surveillance campaign and sort of you know, listened in on phone calls of nine journalists or so several years ago. Um, you know, tensions obviously run hot with a lot of these. Uh, companies, but but I've never seen anything get to this point or go to these extremes, alleged extremes. <laughs> <laughs> right, alleged. Yeah, nothing quite like this comes to mind. I mean, one thing that I was thinking about was we're aware that some tech companies have dossiers on reporters. They like to compile information about us and our beats and what we typically cover and our prior coverage. 
hoping that in some ways that maybe they can glean some insights into like our psyches and what we're thinking about certain things and people and products. The most famous example we have is very close to us. Um, over a decade ago, Microsoft accidentally sent their dossier on our colleague, Fred Vogelstein, to Fred Vogelstein via email. He, he was emailed this. He wasn't supposed to see it. And he was able to see exactly um, all of the information that Microsoft had compiled on him. So the existence of that kind of document doesn't necessarily signal any kind of animosity. But that said, sometimes things can get quite tense between reporters and the companies they're covering. Yeah, I think, and, and one other sort of recent example that maybe comes closer to uh, Uber, uh, back in the battle days of Uber, uh, had floated the idea of spending up to a million dollars to to do oppo research on a journalist named sarah lacy who had written a lot of critical things about the company but even that and at the time that was shocking and scandalous nowhere near mailing live cockroaches to someone's house no this is wild okay so i have two questions one of the six former ebay employees who are cited in this filing does that include the former CEO and the former top comms executive, or are they two characters in addition to the six employees who launched this alleged campaign? And and two, what are the charges these people face? So to the first point, that's a really important distinction that I feel like is getting lost. And there are still things we don't know, but they the two uh, executives, they are not charged with anything. They are not named in uh the criminal complaint we have uh, we have confirmed their identities uh, independently through reporting, but uh, so they and and I th- I think you know there there's still a lot of questions that remain. There is a it it seems at least plausible that a, a lot of this was just a team of rogue employees who went down a very bad path. I think the bigger accountability question is what enabled the culture where they felt like that was okay to do in the first place, right? So even though they didn't have, you know, they weren't actually hitting buy on the on the um, the Halloween mask. Uh, they uh, they were still sort of overseeing this world in which in which these people did that. And in terms of the charges, all six of the former employees and contractors they're charged with conspiracy to commit cyber stalking and conspiracy to tamper with witnesses. On that second point, uh, we didn't get to that, but basically they tried to coach each other through various interviews with police and eBay uh, eBay's own internal investigative team to figure out how they were going to lie most effectively to get out of this. Um, So each charge carries a sentence of up to five years uh, and a fine of up to $250,000 plus restitution. It's hard to quantify what the restitution would be for a two week or whatever long campaign of terror. Uh, But I guess we'll find out as this continues to play itself out. All right, Brian, I am really glad that you're on this case because I'm sure you're going to continue to update us and we'll have to have you back on the show to do so. But stick around for this next segment. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to talk about the disinformation campaign you haven't heard of yet. Welcome back. By now, it's well known that Russian operatives have perpetrated multiple coordinated campaigns to spread disinformation online. But until recently, one operation has flown under the radar. It's called secondary infection. The infection is spelled with a K. And its tactics have been difficult to track. It's also notable because of just how many platforms this group has reached in this ongoing disinformation war. So this week, Wired senior writer Lily Hay Newman wrote a story about this on Wired.com, and we've brought her on the show to tell us all about it. Lily, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. 
So how is secondary infection different from other disinformation campaigns? Right. So I think the crucial differences here is that secondary infection is all about covering its tracks. They use burner accounts for everything they do as their big hallmark. So every post on a blog, every post on a social network, it's all from a one-time account that they just use really briefly for that action, and then the account goes away. Uh, And that emphasis on what we call operational security is just really unusual in these campaigns because other groups like the Internet Research Agency that you may have heard of that have been sort of gallivanting about, you know, perpetrating these disinformation campaigns over the recent years, uh, they're really focused on their reach and sort of growing the brand of their uh, accounts you know, and trying to get a lot of followers so they can really get their information or disinformation out there as far as possible. Uh, But secondary infection just seems to have a really different approach uh, and potentially really different goals in what they're trying to achieve. So Lily, um, the other two big disinformation campaigns run out of Russia by the IRA, uh, which you mentioned, and the GRU. Um, from what we've seen of those, how is this different in scope? Um, from what I understand from your story, they all have similar targets. Uh, they're going after uh, disrupting international elections. They're trying to uh, sow unrest between European countries. Um, but secondary infections net spreads a little bit wider. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, they definitely have a lot of overlap in targeting. There are also some differences in, you know, what the different groups were particularly interested in pursuing in terms of targets. But the scope is a really interesting factor because the other two were really focused on uh, prominent mainstream social media uh, or things like uh, hacking to be able to do leaking campaigns of legitimate data, things like, you know, disruptive attacks, things like that. Uh, Whereas secondary infection is casting this really wide net, again, with these one-time burner accounts across all sorts of platforms. So not just prominent social networks, you know, that we know in the U.S. or prominent in other markets, but much more niche sort of local uh, microblogging, forums. uh, And again, the reason it's so significant to have all these types of uh, more uh, disparate sites that they're using is that they're also using the burner accounts. So it's like they both don't have a concentrated presence in a few sites and also have these really ephemeral identities rather than developing more fully formed personas. So it, you know, it's much more of a just throw everything against the wall and see what sticks type of approach seemingly. But I think a big question about secondary infection uh, and something, this is research from the social media and disinformation uh, research firm Graphica. One thing Graphica is uh, still really open to hearing more research on, it doesn't have conclusions on yet, is really what the ultimate goals of these campaigns were, because they sync up with, you know, a lot of the targeting of the other Russian operations, as you were saying. But they're not, they don't seem to be as effective, you know, stuff can't go viral this way generally. So it's just a little more unclear what exactly they were trying to do. Uh, Perhaps they were, 
so focused on hiding their identities so they could kind of get out in front of the other groups and sort of poke around and see what's happening and see what might work. You know, maybe it's it's sort of a, a, a reconnaissance type of action, but uh, it's really hard to say. And secondary infection is also really big on making fake leaks, where they say they're releasing a leak, but really it's just forged documents or forged data that they've created. And those forgeries were never, or almost never very good. You know, it was pretty obvious that they were forgeries. So it's really unclear what their ultimate goal was since it wasn't as obviously effective as the other groups. So it sounds like there are two alarming parts to this, at least. One being that they have been so hard to track. And the second being that we're just not sure what it is they want. Yeah, exactly. And I think... The fact that they seem to be a distinct third entity, it really indicates the shortcomings, actually, of our view of what's been going on with Russian disinformation in these recent years. It's been so prominent and so, you know, in all of our minds, and yet there was this whole other operation happening. Uh, Secondary infection has been around since 2014, uh, and they clearly were funded all this time to be doing operations throughout. So there's some type of persistent interest in what they're doing, but we don't exactly know what the benefit was from all of this. Is there an element too? It, it's, it's certainly alarming. Is it also a little bit reassuring that they are terrible at their job? Yeah. Researchers we talked to definitely pointed out that One thing you can take from secondary infection is that not all Russian disinformation operations are the pinnacle of sophistication and effectiveness, you know, that they are trying stuff out and messing around and just trying to figure out what to do uh, the same as anyone else would be, and that there isn't this sort of sinister, all-knowing power here, you know, that it's, it's a human endeavor for sure. Um, I would like to do the American thing and make this all about us. Uh, By all means. We're in an election year right now. uh, And which Russian disinformation campaign should we be most worried about this year? Is it one of these three? uh, Or is it one that we have not yet heard of? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Secondary infection, for their part, uh, they're not gone. The researchers have seen activity as of March 2020, uh, but they seem to have kind of dropped on under the radar again uh, after researchers started uh, publishing preliminary findings about them over the last year. And then, you know, this big report has just come out that's more comprehensive. So I don't want to say they're gone, but it's worth noting that they've uh, scaled back a bit, at least from what we can see. Uh, but I think your point is really good that we need to be concerned about all options here. You know, it could be that uh, hacking and leaking or disruptive operations like we saw in 2016 come back and that, you know, that is a concern. Or it could be that there's a fourth, a fifth, you know, uh, more groups than we can imagine with other uh, approaches or agendas uh, and while I don't want to freak anyone out, it's it, it just, you know, that is something that uh, we can take from secondary infection is that we don't have the full picture. And Lily, isn't it true that, uh, you know, Burisma, for example, there have been reports that it was hacked several months ago 
uh, and given the amount of energy that Trump has in the past tried to make their make it seem like some, some sort of shady connection with Biden, the closer we get to the election, the more likely we are to maybe see the results of that or some other sort of hacking we don't even know about to try to throw things off as November gets closer. Yeah, I, that's really a good point. And I think the fact that we in the U.S., you know, experienced this in 2016 is going to put everyone on high alert going into November, uh, both for legitimate things that could crop up that are a concern, as well as just sort of uh, devolving into conspiracy theories about, you know, taking every signal as a potential issue. So, uh, you know, it, it that's sort of the whole purpose of disinformation campaigns is to sow that uncertainty about what's real, what's really going on. Uh, and I think Brian's making a great point that that is also an important thing to watch out for. Lily, thanks for taking us through this story or as much as we know right now. And I encourage everyone to go to Wired.com and read both Brian's story about the eBay scandal and Lily's story about this Russian disinformation campaign. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we'll do recommendations. All right, Lily, what's your recommendation for our listeners this week? So I'm gonna recommend something not to do. you know, as protests continue around the U.S. and uh, people are really mobilizing and, you know, trying to get out uh, get out there, uh, my recommendation would be to not wear logos to protest, you know, visible uh, logos on your clothing or something like a recognizable image, something like that. And I also recommend that if you have any tattoos, that they not be visible when you're attending protests because there have, this is always sort of a theoretical concern, but just in recent uh, weeks, there have been reports about protesters being tracked by law enforcement, you know, away from protests because of either what they were wearing or a really recognizable tattoo. Uh, So it's just something to keep in mind. There was even uh, an example in Philadelphia uh, very recently. And just, you know, uh, plain clothes, unassuming. uh, And it's just a simple way to make you blend into the crowd. Great advice, Lily. Thanks for that. Brian, what's your recommendation? I'm going to recommend my local bookstore. Can I do that? Uh, Absolutely. They're called... They're called Alabama Booksmith. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, and they are great. They're uh, uh, very friendly people. And th- what they do is they only sell signed first editions of books. So it's a great for a gift. If you are someone who likes uh, you know, a signed book or want to give a signed book, great selection. Uh, so you know, so my general uh, uh, recommendation is support your local bookseller in these times because it's a hard economic time. And if you're looking for a nice little gift, try Alabama Booksmith. Uh wonderful people, good books. Great. Thank you so much. Mike, what do you got for us? I look forward to hearing whatever it was that you enjoyed or consumed on your break. Uh, Well, I spent a lot of time on my break listening to um, the new uh, Russian death metal band called Secondary Infection. They're very good. You should check them out. (laughs) They emerged out of nowhere. Uh, so this month, uh, there is a great moment uh, in American political history, uh, and I'm referring to the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement 
uh, in response to police brutality and in celebration of their achievements recently and in celebration of Juneteenth, which we just had this week, the Criterion Channel has put together a collection called Black Lives. It's 28 films um, directed by or featuring black filmmakers or people from different African-American communities and African communities around the world who have stories that need to be told. Um, the Criterion Channel is a streaming service. You can get it on any device. You can watch it on your computer. You can watch it on your phone. You can watch it on your Roku uh, that um, streams movies with great cultural import, right? Art films, um, uh, winners from Khan, and uh, historical films going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. Um, this collection of 28 movies is outside of the Criterion's paywall for the entire month of June. Uh, there's all kinds of great stuff in there. It's all independent films, small films, things that you probably have not seen. Uh, movies like Kathleen Collins' feature Losing Ground. Uh, there are a few, I think four movies from the director Charles Burnett a black film director uh, who was prominent in the 70s and the 80s. Watermelon Woman by Cheryl Dunn is one that I watched uh, two days ago, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, if you're looking for a place to start, I recommend Agnes Varda's half-hour documentary on the Black Panthers, shot in Oakland in the 70s, and also uh, Les Blank's movie about Mance Lipscomb. It's 45 minutes long. It's called A Well-Spent Life. Mance is a blues singer and a farmer from Texas, and you kind of zoom into his life for three quarters of an hour, and it's just delightful. So this collection is streaming during the entire month of June. You have a couple of weeks left in the month to, to get caught up. It's entirely free, whether you're a subscriber or not. This is great. Thank you, Mike. There's so many great recommendations here. And we should also note that streaming services like Netflix and Apple TV and Amazon Prime have also uh, put together a bunch of different collections. Um, they're calling them different things. But like, for example, Netflix has a collection called Black Lives Matter, and it includes a lot of different films um, and series and documentaries that will help you learn more about uh, the Black experience and racial injustice and are very much worth taking a look at. My recommendation this week is the app Duolingo. Many of you are probably familiar with this. It's been around for a while. I joked the other night on Twitter that I have now entered the Duolingo phase of sheltering in place, looking for things to do as we are primarily staying home and trying to keep the people around us healthy. So it's fun. There's a little Duolingo owl who welcomes you to every lesson. It's sort of a gamified experience. You get points and you level up and um, you unlock new experiences. And um, I'm not at the point yet where I'm trying to, I'm certainly not good enough yet to be deeply conversational. So I'm not quite sure how the app will ultimately compare to things like immersion learning or um, under understanding like sort of more complicated uh, conjugations and things like that. But in terms of just learning phrases and, and, and sort of like slowly increasing your learning of those phrases over time, I am really enjoying Duolingo. Has anyone else used it? I did use it once to try to learn Dutch or I didn't even really think it, that was going to happen, but I was just curious. And uh, it was very fun. And I did enjoy the owl. Uh, and I, I was into it for a little bit. But Dutch is really hard, guys. And hats off to all Dutch speakers. So that's my story. Hats off to the Dutch. It is an 
possible language to learn. Can you say hello in Dutch? Oh man, this was like years ago, man. <laughs> I will say that when I when I tweeted the other night that I was using it, a friend texted me and said, "Give up on Duolingo," and it was incredibly ominous. And I was like, "Good lord, what did Duolingo do to hurt her?" Like it was like she had a bad experience with it for some reason. But I am enjoying it so far. Great. All right, that's our show for this week. Thank you to Lily and Brian for joining us. Thank you, guys. Stay safe out there, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. The show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. We'll be back next week. And until then, stay healthy. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.